Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hey, guy. Hello, Gary. <laughs> it was really nice to see you in person the other day in a rehearsal room. That was amazing. It was amazing to see you and other people. It was also really nice to actually perform some sort of a show to an audience of two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were tested, obviously. <laughs> it's socially distant. <laughs> no, we got together for. Uh, I put. I routined a few of the songs for my new record with Guy. What a band! That was nice. To, nice to play with other musicians. It was, it was fantastic. It was an we, absolute joy. So thank you for that. We all need that, and um, we're getting some great responses on stuff, aren't we? I, I, the uh, the Beatles one was uh, with Giles was was cooking. Yeah, we seem to have tapped into the huge sort of subculture of of Beatles groups uh, uh, on yeah. social media. Sorry, not Beatles groups, obviously. Um, Some yeah, of them which are only two people, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, but, but yeah, but that has been fantastic. And so we've got another rather encyclopedic one today, haven't we? It's someone who's kind of, there's no one he hasn't come across. He's played with everybody. And, and you know what this guy has given to British music and young bands still to this day, with whether his work on the tube or you know later or whatever it might be. I mean, he's, and a way of speaking. He has a way of speaking, <laughs> and he apparently he has this enormous, enormous train set. No, don't, don't, don't. Yes, that's <laughs> which I'm really looking forward to. Also, we've not had anyone on this show so far who's well. I don't think he's had. He's got anything to do with prog for sure. But no one on this show who's got anything to do with boogie woogie. That's very, very true. So I think I think you just actually gave away our guest there, so we actually don't need to introduce him. It's Mr. Jules Holland. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? 
I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, the two, two Get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters Podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. There you are. We're all in? Okay. So we're on the phone now, but that's all right. Is that working okay? Yeah. Is that going to be boring for you, holding the phone? No, not at all. If it's all right for you, I'm just, I'm just going to shut the door. Hang on. And if your lawyer calls at any time, he's going to come up as well. Is that a Paul Simonon behind you? It is. That's right. Ah, it's very well spotted. Yes. Welcome to the Rock Hunters, Jules. Very yes. nice to see you. Very nice to be here. Very nice to be there, looking well. Everyone we interview now has also got a parallel podcast. We're all living in podcast universes. Well, that's right. I hope you'll be able to come and join me on mine. It's, um, it's, I think it's the way forward. Um, I think the traditional ways of, of writing a thank you letter or watching the television of an evening of, of kind of slipping away when everybody's podding or, or um, what doing do you mean, something when, else. When someone gives you a birthday present, you have to do a podcast to say thank you. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. You gather around with a lot of with with your friends, and you and you. Uh, that's right. And you make a whole documentary about them on, on podding. <laughs> I don't know where the pod pod bit came from. I quite like that sort of word podcast. It's kind of yeah. Um, it was worse because yeah. it was from the iPod age. Remember that? Oh, that's right. The dear. Yeah. Old, that's right. In the old days, people used to cast nasturtiums, didn't they? Or aspersions? <laughs> no, they cast. I think pods. That's right. And I thought that I always thought that was a flower. I thought it was a flower being thrown around a bit like um, that man, that, that person that for years heard that when he was at school, he heard the expression or no, his grandfather said to him, knowledge is power, Francis Bacon. And he misheard it and thought That's it right. was knowledge is power. France is bacon. <laughs> and he went through his whole life thinking that was the case. And then he, he then went to, when he was at school, they said the English teacher would say, "Knowledge is power." Francis Bacon, and he'd say, "Yes, knowledge is power, but why Francis Bacon?" And they'd say, "Well, it just is." Oh yeah, and he sort of accepted it. And it wasn't until he was sort of, you know, a sort of grown up that it's sort of the whole thing. He realised that it wasn't Francis Bacon; it was Francis Bacon. But they're the sort of that's the old world for you nowadays. You wouldn't oh, have any of that. Yeah. And that man became what, the greatest boogie Fra- woogie player in the UK. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Apart from podcasting, how has this all been for you? I did feel sorry for you a bit because I thought, oh, I hope he hasn't got all of those 20-odd musicians still on wages throughout that whole uh, year. Around his house. Well, I think I'd be bankrupt if I was. Unfortunately, no, I think it's been very hard and for all the musicians and, you know, the people in my orchestra of all different sorts of ages. So um, some of the older ones, it's like an enforced retirement. And I think a lot of people, uh, I'm coming across a lot of people in different spheres uh, who, when it first happened, after I thought, well, actually, this is after a year, it's like a, a trial of retirement. And I think we're just going to stop, you know, it's like a practice of retirement and that's what we're going to do. But then there's a backlash against that. So a lot of people who thought they were going to retire, they sort of did the bit in the garden, redecorated the sort of spare room, whatever they were going to do, um, thatched their sort of television or, or whatever they were planning to do. They did it. And then they thought, I'm bored as, 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 as bollocks now. And so I need to find something. I need to go back to work. And I'm never, ever going to think about retiring ever again. So I, I did um, hear um, I did hear a rumour from someone who's who's always on the road, who's very, very successful, who who apparently said to his family the other day, I'm actually really liking this hanging out with you guys. You know, there is that element of 
what a, what a weirdo. No wonder he's in music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just desperate to get away from my three loud boys that just you know, taken over the house. It's like Lord of the Flies. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there, you know, it'd be it would be silly to say there aren't benefits. You know, you see the flowers in the garden and you sort of understand the season, but uh, and everything slows down and you live the life of a civilian much more which is more routine. And of course, the point I think of a, of a, um, a musician or an artist's life is it doesn't have the same routine. That other, yeah, there is a routine, but it's not the one that mm. people that do regular jobs have because you're uh, out at all sort of times, you're eating late at night, you're traveling in and you're only in one place for a day. And that's the whole point of it. And all of that sort of changes. And so you're at home for a week and it's odd. I suppose, you know, it's a bit like, being a merchant seaman or something and um and uh, and suddenly you're at home with no ship to go on and you sort of get a bit mad you know but hopefully we don't all go down the pub like sort of uh, victorian sailors and get blind drunk on gin but then but because jules you're someone who's such an obsessive what well, i mean you work all the time but then and you love to tour but then for instance you had later moved didn't you Speci- specifically so it could be nearer your home no, that- <laughs> no, there's a, there was a rumor. No, no, there was a rumor that. Well, we all no, well, fell for it. I'm telling you that now. Good, good. That's what I like the idea. I like the idea that I would wield such great power yeah. within the sort of BBC. Yeah. Um, and then he was a bit bored going to church, so they so they dug up, they they moved St Paul's Cathedral to get it a bit closer to him. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, I think what we did do. In, I mean, one of the things, of course, that has come out of it is that you couldn't do the usual program because, you, you, you know, the studio fills up with a few hundred people in the audience. And then by the time you've got all the musicians and the technicians, that's like another sort of 75 people or whatever. So, you, you know, the, the restrictions wouldn't allow that. So we came up inadvertently through, the, I mean, what this is, what the, the pandemic threw up was a new format, which was getting one guest in with me. And at first it was one guest just on a Zoom screen. We weren't even in the, the room together, although now we're allowed to be in a room. Distance by a piano, which is apparently the regulation distance you have to be from somebody to uh, avoid. Yeah, they were designed uh, during the Spanish flu originally, weren't they? That's be. right. That's, that's, well, that's, where, that's, where the, that's where the grand piano is comes from. Is that a metric right. piano or, <clears throat> or an imperial piano? Uh, they're imperial pianos, I think, you know, uh, uh, metrics slightly smaller. But um, but the, 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 we came up with this new format where people look at the or pick their favourite artists from our vast archive. Or they have a rummage through my archives um, and uh, see what they can find. And then we discuss it. And because that's on a much smaller scale, we do it in my studios in Greenwich. So that there is so in that sort of way, it has there, there is um, some sort of element of that, which is quite sort of useful because we... We go in there and, and that's quite, it's, it's a fun place to do it, you know. But I wouldn't have believed if you just said to me, you know, in my studios, it's where we rehearse with my big band. We record there, do the rehearse with the Hootenannies, we rehearse for our tours, make all our records. Uh, I used to do radio shows, whatever. We do all the stuff there. But if you'd have said, oh, you'll be doing laters there, I'd have said, absolutely unbelievable. But um, it's true. So I suppose in that sense, we've done them uh, at my house, yeah. And hopefully the plan is to get back to normal at some stage. This is what we all want, don't we? I mean, Guy and I were rehearsing uh, a a while ago, just recently. Yeah, last week. And the thrill of it, just being in the same room with a bunch of musicians, listening to loud music that we were making ourselves. But that's very optimistic. What were you rehearsing for? Oh, it's it's my record, Jules. Can I just promote that for a second and just say it's my album? (laughs) 
but I know you've got a new record. But you, but that's, but uh, when you're saying, but you presumably you've you, you've recorded your record, right? Yeah, no, it was really just to sit to make the thing come alive because I was out there promoting it and I'd never heard a whole band playing it, and I just felt like I didn't quite believe in it until I surrounded myself by some musicians. And of course, the other thing is to get on your show. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, once, hopefully, once it all comes back, you could do. Once we all, you know, there's so much stuff. <clears throat> I mean, what really is awful, there's so many people that had great records out, you know, in, in the past year, and it's all kind of, if you had something come out, it's all kind of gone, you know, it's really sort of frustrating. Mm. I mean, the only other positive side of it is that people are at home, and therefore they've got more time to look at stuff, I suppose, you know, and they're on their screens all the time, you know, they're looking at Instagram, they're discovering things. But did you find it hard to record a record in this, in this, uh, under these circumstances? Uh, it was hard, but there were a lot of out of work musicians. So, um, you know, I had the opportunity yeah. to find people that, that, that would normally be on the road that could, that I could work. We did it remotely, not over a phone like we're doing with you. I mean, but we did it, you know, we did it remotely over, over the internet. And I think that worked quite well. You know, I think all artists, you know, they come up against forces of opposition and they'll just try and step to the left or the right and get around it, you know, rather than just giving up. Like we all went scurrying off and made uh, podcasts or something. I mean, the only, my only, I've slightly had an issue with people t exposing themselves too much musically from their living rooms. Um, you know, yeah. I really want to see people that I adore just suddenly getting out their acoustic guitars and doing acoustic versions i don't know do you know what i mean guy it's i know absolutely but it was the same thing because i did some of your album at home and then there's uh, the two fantastic days when we came into the studio because i hate playing bass for someone at home, at home because it's like half the joy of playing is being in a room with people making their day bringing something to their track and you know even if it's a track you don't particularly like and then but if you're just on your own, you're just like, well, is this any good? I, don't, I mean, will that do? You know. Well, I think that's right. You don't, you don't, or you think you feel like something's great, but you can't. You when you're with people, you can read much more what it's all about. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, if when you play things live, you can see whether it's having an effect on people or not. So yeah, I think it's. Uh, you, if you can't do that, it's very hard to sort of. To, you know, they one they're inextricably linked. You know, a live performing live and recording. And, you, you know, I mean, Dr. John once said to me, he said, you know, whether I'm doing a gig or whether I'm in a rehearsal room or whether I'm in a recording studio, or whether I'm in my dressing room playing or whether I'm at home playing, they build on each other to give you the overall picture, which is the music that comes out of us all, you know. It's very hard with people, because a lot of musicians, they're, you know, it, you've been making a record, a lot of musicians, they just tour. That's their job. That's mm. their work. And they're the ones that have been really... Yeah, sort but, of I, but I would say there's one thing, for instance, this is where later is a is a very particular beast. And it's a brilliant thing. One of the reasons I love doing your show, Jules, is because you're performing to your peers. You're standing there with five other bands watching you, which is kind of equal parts. Ter you know, if it's Paul Simon, it's terrifying. If it's kind of Elbow, it's like, check us out. Is or if it's the fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and that's an absolute, that's a, that's a really brilliant thing about your show, that thing of, of having, you know, because, with you know, musicians usually only on stage one at a time, but that thing of being surrounded by bands. No, that's right. And, 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 and that's exactly, thing. and that's, that's, that's also the thing that, of course, you don't get in with, with our, with our best of um, archive selection show, but you do get that, that be, in a sense, because you see in the archive, some of the, um, the people uh, who have been, uh, you know, in the archive footage, you often see bands looking at one another, and that's kind of the highlight of it. 
But I think it's also difficult, like you put a record out, and it's really difficult because you, everything's more difficult. You can't do a promotional gig for it. You can't kind of, any interviews you do can't be face-to-face. You can't have a big playback for the record. All the stuff that you want to do, you can't do. It's really, I think it's... I know. Um, I mean, look at, look at uh, you know, Paul Weller or, or Taylor Swift. They just released them one album. They couldn't go on the road. They just released another album. Yeah. Two albums yeah. back to back. Turned everyone into Prince, just churning out records. <laughs> and just, yeah. I, I want to talk about your history. Obviously, we both want to talk about your history. But we, but what interests me the most is um, how a bloke who plays Boogie Woogie becomes so successful. Because this is so niche. <laughs> There aren't many. Yeah. No, it's. I think you are definitely in in thirty six episodes or whatever we've done thirty seven. You're our first boogie woogie player. Maybe you could clear up boogie woogie for people. Yeah, first of all, I think you're right there. I mean, boogie woogie's been much better to me than it's been to anybody else historically. <laughs> you know, a lot of the, 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 I, I love the boogie, and it's not. It's not. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, well, we'll get we'll get onto sort of what it is in a moment. But I mean, it really is historically. People, the exponents, really, um, you know, they, they didn't do well out of it, which was pretty awful, really. Um, and and it's not, uh, um, you know, it's not a, a career path I'd recommend to a lot of people. Um, there are boogies everywhere, but I think the key is it's is is starting with the boogie and having a feel for it. Um, so and and it's a broad thing. I think it was Van Morrison said to me. He said, you know, there were people having a boogie, which is like some sort of a improvised dance that might have the old sexy bit to it. They were probably doing that in a field in Somerset in 1320, and they were probably doing it somewhere in Africa in 1100 or whatever. And uh, in each and, and in Brazil, you know, everybody has their own boogie. It, but that the feeling of it that that is the feeling, which might be also you see it perhaps in if you see a a, a Bruegel painting of a country dance, you can see the people all sort of drunk having their knees up. That you can see that's the same feeling as as a boogie, and I think it got honed down. Uh, as recorded music came in in the 1920s and 30s with the with the uh, uh, from the blues and the African American blues music, I think the word boogie woogie itself is an African word. It's it's it's, it's a, which um, which expresses dance and and amorous feelings, but the actual playing of it, I suppose, that once it gets on to the piano, some people say it started it started on the you know I think all music's all music evolves from lots of things that have come before it. But they do say a lot of the boogie woogie comes from the, the logging camps in Texas. If you look at the... Did not uh, see that coming. Uh, no. but the, uh, well, no. and there was a man called Dudlow Joe. Uh, no, and his name was Turk. What was his name? Turk. And he was so enormously fat, he had play, he wanted to play the stride piano where your left hand plays a, a note and then the chord and it sort of, it, it jumps like, up and down the piano. Like, striding. Mrs. like Mrs. Mills. Exactly. But his, his belly was so big that he couldn't get his hand across there, so he developed um, a repetitive left hand, which which is started gave birth to the boogie woogie flavour. That's one story, you know. That's one sort of element of it. But they say it was in the logging camps it would go around. And the important thing to remember is that the the deforestation of America at the turn of the twentieth century was vast. If you looked at a map, you know, half of America was forests in something like this in eighteen ninety. And by 1930, a tenth of America was forest because all of it, the logging industry was huge. So in those camps, that's where the music is supposed to have gone around. And then, of course, it builds up where the African-American migrant musicians come up and they go to Chicago because they want to get a better job out of the countryside. It evolves there. And the feeling of it then carries on through rhythm and blues music 
and then through like rock and roll music that then comes after that of, of uh, uh, um, and like Chuck Berry and Matt and Jerry Lee and all those that sort of popular people of the 50s. That uh, same well, feeling comes through. Well, yeah, when and you they say still both. get elements of it when you hear sort of Led Zeppelin. So there's a little elements or ska music has an element. So there's a lot of crossing over stuff. But when you hear a bit of boogie woogie piano, when it's done well, it really has a sort of a, it, it, it still thrills me when it's done well. It's lovely. So it must, was it one sort of epiph- epiphanic moment when you, you heard? Uh, Yes, I could say that that it was. Um, he couldn't uncle, say it. I couldn't uh, say that. No, I'm not even quite no, sure what the word was I was looking for. <laughs> no, I think epiphenic moment is a very epiphenic. good way of putting it, yes. <laughs> I came in, my uncle, who was not that much older than me, I, mean, I was probably sort of eight, and he would have been aged maybe 16, 17, something like that. And my mother had had a Sister Rosetta Tharp record of Up Above My Head and had showed my uncle some boogie-woogie piano. He was then playing it on my nan's piano in the front room of a little house in Greenwich. And I came in and heard it. And I thought, that's the best thing I've ever heard. It just made me filled with joy and made me sort of want to dance around with pleasure. So I said to him, well, how do you do that? And he showed me and I was able, not particularly well, I don't suppose, to copy him by ear and just by hand. He showed me what he was doing. So I then played that obsessively for a long time. Had my uncle been let's just say, Paderewski or Oscar Peterson or something like that. Um, I might not be where I was today because I might well, Mrs. Mills. copy that. I don't know if I could do all that now, but yeah. So, so just, I just want to fit, there were two things in there. One, I want to know how much the piano was in your family. But, but the other thing is just going back on, on what Boogie Woogie is. So it seems to me that it's unlike the blues, which can often be in a minor chord, because it's still 12 bars, isn't it, normally, Boogie Woogie? It has that feel to it. But it's, it be, it's... But, I, but, 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 but you get, get Lightning Hopkins, and it's like nine bars and then 13 bars. And it's, it's, I suppose the boogie, boogie, you know, you, you get a boogie. It's a fast blues, certainly, and it's got a certain feel to it that when you're, you, it's quite hard to describe, but when you know it, you know it. You know, it makes you want to dance. It makes you want to jump up. And it makes you, I think that's the important thing that musicians, every musician has to do really to, to become, uh, to, be, to be able to work. You need to be able to make people dance and cry and uh, feel amorous. You know, you know, if you get them to feel those things, then you're mm-hmm. sort of on your way. And boogie woogie is definitely something that gets them all, charged up i learned that in the you know playing this 1930s you know like chicago music in a pub in greenwich when i was a teenager everybody got up and went oh this is great you could see it having that effect so i think it's certainly a dance a dance blues music and is it always in a major key always in a major key no i, well, well, I think like that's something like it's, it's like the half blues. and half it's like it's yeah exactly it's in both it's in both at the same time i think that's the yeah. pleasure of it there's a lot of blue notes in it and there's not really there's no, and like the blues, there's not really any rules to it. And historically, where it starts, in, and it, you know, and it really started in Chicago, it sort of goes mad because all those blues people went there in the, in, in the 30s. And they used to have these things called house rent parties, where basically somebody would have a party in their flat. You'd get, a, there were good piano players. You'd rent the, you'd, the piano player would turn up and everybody would pay a few dollars to get into your flat and they'd all get sort of off their nut and you'd have a nice time of it. Um, um, and there was a lot of, piano players working there for that but they were kind of really inventing this incredible art form and not really getting rewarded for it and it wasn't wasn't until later that people went wait a minute they've kind of they've latched onto something here you know they've, they've sort of invented something new but what's interesting is is how that was going to fit into squeeze yeah well i suppose when squeeze starts the uh, you, you know myself and glenn Tilbrook and squeeze we used to go and play we playing local pubs we would bowl in i mean we weren't particularly great as you know we were just learning ourselves but we would bowl into a local 
pub when we were sort of 15, 16, I suppose, something like that. And if I had a piano, I'd start playing the piano and Glenn would have an acoustic guitar and we'd play sort of Elvis songs or Jerry Lee songs and some blues songs and some Beatles songs. And everybody would say, that's good. And we'd have our friends and then the landlord would say, well, you come back and do that next week. And then here's a fiver. And then we'd sort of get, we had about five little gigs we do like that. And then more people would come, you know. And then it evolved into... Uh, uh, Chris Difford came and they started writing songs and we became much more of a, it became much more of a thing but um, we could all I mean Glenn Tilbrook is a great rock and roll boogie woogie mm-hmm. he's really he plays that music great you know he's a very, I mean he's a very good guitar player but he can play that he, you, he could do a very convincing B.B. Uh, King style boogie guitar I mean there B.B. King is a great boogie woogie guitar player you know he, he, he would because it's funny because um, yeah the word boogie to, to us because conjures up visions of status quo and pub rock doesn't it uh, boogie well yeah. or of course michael jackson and uh you know yeah, attributing yeah. attributing the blame to the boogie um which is what he did <laughs> uh no they didn't have they didn't have the the, the, the woogie was left out um it's like the blues has a huge uh, or jazz just i mean once you try and define music i mean um uh, I'll just name drop again. Ray Charles did say this to me. You know, once you define, define music with words, you'll trip over yourself. Um, because I was, I was saying something about, are you, are you a blues pianist? You know, it's like jazz. It's, it covers all this stuff. You know, you get some people say, oh, boogie woogie isn't jazz, of course. But I mean, it's fast improvisational music based on the blues. So if that's not jazz, I don't know what is. But it's like, but it, but it doesn't sound anything like uh, if you listen to sort of a weather report or something like that, you know. Well, so. that's the thing. There's so many of those Amer- American musical genres that we know, which are all basically just 12 bar with different rhythm and instrumentation. And you change what? instrumentation and the rhythm and it becomes an entirely different genre. Because I was going to ask, yeah. what about, about yeah. ragtime? Where does that fit in on this? Well, that's fits, well, that's ragged time, you see, that comes from. And ragged time is that's what it's meant to be. But that was an early form of, and it's quite a sophisticated form, um, a popular um, music, and bearing in mind, in the in the sort of uh, from from the, from the late nineteenth century and the early twentieth century, before people were buying lots of records, lots of people played the piano and they read music, and so you'd sell your latest song, you'd sell the sheet music, and there were more pianos than there were cars. People had pianos, you know, even relatively um, poor people had pianos in their homes and in the pubs everywhere, you know, and people could read music, and so that's that's the way the popular songs spread around. And ragtime was a great way of doing that; it was a new dance. That then evolved into the Harlem Stride piano, which is a slightly different thing, which is that oh. that's really, you can hear hip hop in Harlem Stride piano, that the rhythms, right. uh, ragtime was quite nice, but it didn't quite have the same, uh, it, had this, it was based on ragged time, but the stride piano really was syncopated. And that kind of is quite, uh, uh, people like Willie Lyon Smith and Fats Waller, they, that's quite a, an exciting sort of form of uh, of fast jazz music. Because ragtime was basically, I remember everyone at school learning The Entertainer when The Sting, when Sting, the Sting came out. Yeah. That's right. And that well, a popular that, film that's is, what is, ragtime was to us. Yeah, a popular film is good for, for that sort of thing and uh, for, for spreading the, the music like that. Yeah, that music was all right. I never learned that music because it, it, it didn't really boogie, whereas the stride piano that just followed that, then it kind of got going. I think people took the ragtime and then they moved it into something, into a kind of a, a, a more percussive, uh, styling but the important thing to remember about the boogie is it's not you know when you listen to Lionel Hopkins really it's nine bars here um, you know or Lowell Paulson they're not 12 I wouldn't get locked into 12 bars well it's because it's, 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 it's with the thing with blues when it was solo performers again that's the right it, it's like also whether it's in three whether it's in four and you're right and the, and the bar structure is completely random isn't it it's just whatever the bloke wants it's, it's like Sid Barrett 
It's basically all yeah, about whatever the vocals it, it, doing. Exactly. I, I worked. I backed Willie Dixon, who of course wrote, you know, I just want to make love to you. Um, you know, he was one of the greatest blues writers of all, all time. And I'm I was sorry, working Wang with Wang Dang Doodle. I just want to make a picture Wang Dang Doodle. Dang doodle. <laughs> going to picture Wang Dang Doodle all night long. Um, uh, and, I dare I mean, say you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, but um, uh, which is quite frightening. And he said, <laughs> I was with a band of very sophisticated musicians, and they got completely confused because they said, right. How many bars is it before we go to the four chord then? He said, it's oh, when I lift my hand up. They said, well, how many bars is that? He said, well, it's when I lift my hand up. <laughs> so it's like, that's but that's what you've got to do with the blues. Yeah. You've got to, you know, it's a feel thing. You know, you've got to sort of watch the main bloke. I, I um, love that old that old school playing. I was, we were talking the other day to Stephen Van Zandt and there's that brilliant bit of footage where, where you know, they're jamming on stage with, with Bruce Springsteen. He just holds his hand up with four fingers like this and the whole band go to the four chord. And it's like, wow, you know, I grew up in the 80s. We never did things like that. You know, yeah, the four chord. We never even knew there was a four chord. We only yeah. had the one. How would you hold up for a major seven? <laughs> Latin musicians are the, are the kings for that, aren't they? Where you basically have, they'll start an evening and there's just a set of cues. And that's, you know, ra- rather than even music, it's just like, that's half time. That means go double time. That means go to three. And, and they'll just play all night based on hand signals. So Yeah, no, that's, but I've seen that. I mean, the old, the, old, yeah, the old trad jazzes in the pubs used to do that. Tapping the tops of their head meant one thing, go back to the top. And the, it was a bit like um, the, the tic-tac men at the, at the dog tracks, <laughs> yes. you know, where they, it was all these symbols, but you weren't quite sure what they meant. And I did, I, I turned up... Uh, club once and sat in with dr john in texas and he he was he was doing he was like putting two fingers up and i thought what's that about then he's like 10 minutes of <laughs> fuck off sort of thing but he wasn't he was telling me the key it was uh uh it was key of d because it was the sharps and the flats where he's put his hands up oh, wow. you know it's for one flat and it was was Flats were down and sharps were up. So that was how you knew what the key was. <laughs> no, yeah. just a well, E flat. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jules, we have to get back to your life a bit. Um, there's a, you know, it's, you, you have these beautiful sort of naughty incidents that happen occasionally in your life, uh, which spur you on to the next great success. And, and I did read about you, you know, upsetting one of the teachers at school by damaging his Triumph Herald and getting expelled. Is that true? Well, I've got nothing. I know ish, but not quite. There had been a lot of, you know, when I was talking earlier about playing in pubs with um, uh, 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 Glenn Tilbrook and that when we first did that, I think we, uh, it gave us, I hadn't been going to school much anyway, and it gave us both an idea that we were, we thought, well, hang on, we're getting paid to go and play music in a pub, in pubs. We can do this. We were sort of overly confident thinking, oh, this is all going to be all right. Probably like yourself, you thought, you, you imagine you're going to be a pop star and then you are, and you... But when you look back, you can't believe that it worked out, that it really was true, because lots of people imagine it, but it doesn't, they don't actually become that, if you see what I mean. So we had this sort of rather uh, maybe blind confidence. And so I did. I sort of didn't really bother, I wasn't really bothered with the school thing. And, and so I hadn't been there, and they kept saying, if you don't come in, you're, you're, we're going to chuck you out, which I thought, well, that seems pretty good to me. I mean, I can't, you know, I've, 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 I've thank you for everything, but I've, I've had enough. And then I think we were standing around the back somewhere, enjoying cigars and cognac after our lunch, and somebody's rolled a sixpence under the teacher's car by mistake. And they said, oh, we can't reach the money. We need the money to get whatever it was. Um, and so I explained that if you bounce, which is true, you know, for instance, a car is blocking uh, your exit, you can, if there's two of you, if you bounce the car up and down after a while, you can bounce the car away to move it out of the way. 
nowadays it's harder because all the cars have alarms and things like that and it's a bit more difficult than probably the airbags go off and and all of that but in those days it was much and cars were smaller and lighter and everything so anyway we were doing this and then the poor fellow whose car it was came around the corner and said what are you doing and it did look i could see how it looked bad i could see that it didn't look (laughs) it didn't look good um but um yeah that was that was the poor geography teacher and that was then that was the end of it they said well you we think you've um we, we, we've done all we can for you. Get out. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And was it just straight to music? Is that kind of... Yeah, we played in the pubs. I tried a couple of other jobs. No, I did... We played in the pubs and then we, and then squeeze again. It was fortunate because early on we were sort of off um, uh, touring. I think in by the time, you know, in 77, it must have been 76. So we had various record deals and then they got rid of us because it didn't work out. But somehow we managed it. We'd get another record deal and that would give us another little bit of money to carry on to the next thing, you know, and we'd be playing in. I don't know, supporting curved air in Leicester University or whatever. But then one way or another, we sort of, yeah, we carried on and sort of uh, managed to sort of um, just carry on. I think it's amazing if you can carry on, really, you know. I think it's much harder now for people, not just with the pandemic, if you were a young musician, but generally because I think it's uh, it's just much harder. You can't just bowl into places and turn up and play much. You know, I think that's harder. I know Glenn, Glenn and Chris get all the credit for writing the songs, which they obviously did. I don't know how much you contrib- contributed, but but your personality and even how you are now, you know, there's a sort of, uh, there's a kind of whimsy of, of nostalgia about what you do and how you present yourself that's funny, that's very, very British. And so were Chris uh, and Glenn's songs. How did that sort of little world get created by you guys? I think that that's right. I think it was a very, uh, you know, I think we were p- from the same part of, uh, well, like you, except a different part of London. So I suppose that was part of it. And we had the same shared sense of humour. We, we we did have a great laugh. And I mean, Glenn and Chris wrote most of my songs. I wrote one or two of them, but it was really most of all the, all, it, was, it was their work. Uh, and they were great at it. And, um, and we enjoyed touring because we had a nice time we'd go out and we'd see the world it was like like you know the best way to see the world because we yeah. our manager miles took, we were one of the first lot to be taken out to america you know traveling around in the back of a van or whatever but it was the most exciting thing you could do at age you know 19 or 20 it's well an amazing thing to to be able to um enjoy and i think we liked one another's company and i think the humor i think was very important and we used to see some bands that really 
you know, we were on that we'd be on tour with some bands, and they obviously really didn't like one another at all, and we didn't really understand that. You know, that was a bit mystified, but how you could face or why you bother going on tour with people you didn't really like. I suppose, I suppose, if you can't pay a load of money, you put up with it. But I go on holiday with my family. You mean there's two types of bands, though, aren't there? There's the bands that hate each other, where that feeds the creativity and creates some wonderful angst-driven masterpiece, and then and then there's the rest of us who just like to be on the road with people we like. Exactly, and I have to try and have quite a nice time, really. You know, (laughs) and I think that it was a shared humour. I think also if you're young and you're experiencing the same things together that sort of travelling and excitement and meeting people and and coming into a world that you sort of dreamed of existed somewhere else, but then you become part of it. It's great to do that if you're sharing it with the, with some like-minded folk. You know, I think that's part of the, 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 the pleasure of it. That we were all very different elements. You know, I was a boogieist and loved, um, you know, all the, the, the soul and blues music and all that, as it was called back then. And um, Chris Difford was great and was like to love this Velvet Underground and all of this sort of thing. And Glenn Tilbert was like a, was an amazing guitar player. I mean, it's when we first started, who had taken it, who'd taken on board Jimi Hendrix and the blues and everything. You know, it was like it was really quite an extraordinary thing. So they were all we all sort of, but we all shared. The, we all liked the other stuff as well. It wasn't like we only liked this and didn't like that. And I think it was mixing those things together which helped inform what we did live and it's probably learning early on how to make how to react how to uh, get a crowd going that really helped us and informed you know our our live performances because you realize you know you sort of develop that as you get older as you know yourself that's what you do you kind of figure out how to make a how to play a crowd and and communicate the music the best how did you end up playing on wayne county's fuck off which i have to say is absolutely a brilliant record even (laughs) as that title it is. It is one of the um, the great records. I have to say, uh, I, I was very honoured to play on that. He rang me. Is it pre-squeezed, Jules? It was. It was. Yeah, it was, worse. It was. I was in Squeeze, but they it? were. But right. but they. It was nineteen seventy-six. I think it came out in seventy-seven. But he was recording a record. I hadn't been. I, Squeeze hadn't put a record out yet. And Wayne County rang and said, "I'm doing a record. Could you come and play on my?" Um, uh, play on a track and he was recording at Marquis Studios he's then since had a change and became Jane County but he was fantastic then and as, as she is now um, and uh, he said put the piano on this it's kind of burlesque I haven't put the words on it yet I said all right thanks very much so we I put this blues piano on this sort of style he said oh thanks very much I said look he's, and I think his manager was there and said oh you get 23 quid as your session fee. And I'd never had a session fee before I said oh thanks that's really great I said but the thing that would mean more to me than the money, actually, although thanks very much, I'll have the money. But, but the thing that would really mean a lot to me is I'd never actually been on a, an actual record before. So could you make sure you send me one? It just means so much to me to actually get the finished record. So they got my address, said, sure, yeah. And I was with my mum and dad at the time. And they said, uh, so they anyway, the le- record came through the post. And when we'd recorded it, there were no lyrics. So I didn't, you know, I just played on the thing. And I got it. And my mum was there with my aunt and some friends of theirs, and they're all having tea. And I said, here's the record I played on. And, and I didn't even look at the title. And they said, oh, it's, listen, everybody, look, shush, shush, here, we're putting, he's played, this is his first record he's played on. Listen to this, what is it? On it goes. Anyway, and, they, and there's a piano intro, and they all beam, because it goes, on a piano, that's great. And then in comes Wayne with the first line. You don't want to fuck me, baby, 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 fuck off. <laughs> anyway, it went on like that. And then at the end, it has a, the, the traditional punk reprise where it finishes. And then they go, one, two, one, two, three, four. And it, then tempo doubles up. And they all just scream, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off at the end of it. And it sort of sounds like everything. 
exploding. Anyway, at the end of it, um, my mother looked at one. She said, well, isn't that lovely? Hasn't he done lovely? Yeah. And I said, oh, isn't that lovely piano on that? Yeah. Nobody referred to the lyrics or anything like yeah. that. They just said, I nice was, foot I was lovely. beat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I did take my mother to see Wayne County because I was going to sit in um, with him, at a, but then they didn't have a piano at somewhere like, I can't remember one of the, those sort of gigs where the punks were in the roundhouse. Somewhere, somewhere like that. Yeah, no, it was somewhere bigger than that. It was, it was a sort of a multi. There was a lot of people on the bill. Anyway, we went in, good and way. it was rather good because every, when he came on, everybody chanted "fuck off." But it wasn't because they wanted him to. It was because they wanted his hit. But it's quite funny when you come on the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> like it was the best thing they could have shouted. Anyone going to YouTube to listen to that, make sure your aunt and mother aren't having tea in the same room. But there is a brilliant guitar on that, Greg Van Cook. Yes, I looked him up. That's right. What great guitarist. Is he still around, do we know? Good question. There was a band, was the Electric Chairs. I was yeah, an yeah. honorary electric chair. Um, and they were great. No, really good band. And because I think they were from New York, I think. And that's yeah. and so they had a sort of certain edge. And they came out of that. It was that beginning of punk. DBGBs. New, New York Dolls sort of things and all of that, yeah. Why did you leave Squeeze, Jules? Well, I let, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think I loved it. You know, I mean, I think it was great. I mean, I still enjoy their uh, company. Chris Divid, of course, still tours with me. I mean, if we go to just jump to the futures, Chris Divid still comes out with me sometimes. Glenn Tilbrook still goes out and Chris goes out with playing with him. But then once I think I back in the sort of my early 80s, I thought, well, really, I want to do my own thing. And um, and I think you have to put your hand up, do your own thing if you want to do it. And so I then did The Millionaires, and it wasn't, you know, I hadn't really thought it through. The good bit was I met Pino Palladino. Who I was going to say, yes, advisor. yes, absolutely. Yeah. With the Welsh bass player, um, he's, so, he's my Macbeth. He can only be referred to as the Welsh bass player. You're not allowed to That's say right. that on this podcast. <laughs> You'll have to spin around and holding your nose now. Exactly. But he used to turn, he used to sort of, he, we brought him up from Wales. Um, uh, he was introduced to me by a saxophone player called Mike Pace, who sadly passed away the other day. But um, oh. but Pino's great. I was talking to him the other day. But anyway, but I left Squeeze first because I wanted to do my own thing. Uh, and much as I love them, you know, you want to think in music, you have to be driven by the music that you want to play, really. And then I did the tube for a bit. That came up. We can't pass on the tube, the tube which was just the absolute the most fun thing in the world to do it was the best show ever that well that was our ready steady go wasn't it for the aces i mean i just also mentioned paula because paula wow what you know she invented that sardonic interview didn't she that irony in her voice i mean there would be no the style of presenting really you and her set the tone forever really and I, th- I think what she did actually, which was really, she used, she thought the world of you. By the way, she really liked you. I should I should mention that. Oh, um, I loved her too. Uh, but but uh, but she, I think what she did, which was really great, which she did invent at the time on the television in music, it was very earnest, everything and um, rather serious. There's a program I think called the Oxford Road Show, or there was the Old Grey Whistle Test, and, and they were great shows, but they were quite serious and quite earnest in their approach, and. Paula, a little bit like the, the attitude of the blues, actually, that's quite an important thing, like the attitude of the blues, she couldn't care less what you thought of her. Um, uh, it's just, this is what I'm doing. You can like it or you can dislike it, but I couldn't care less. This is me. And I think it was very interesting to have that sort of attitude because it hadn't been, and, and it was also spontaneous. It wasn't written down or planned. So I think that, that it started that um, and it hadn't, we hadn't seen that before in, in music television because it hadn't been that before. It had either been super nicey 
or very earnestly and seriously, and it hadn't had that, I couldn't care less what you think of me, I'm going to ask you about sex, um, which is a you know a completely different sort of angle. But that's what a lot of the music was about, so why not? A, a cultural point I'd like to bring up. One thing I used to love whenever I was doing the tubers, I'd run around the front where the audience were coming in under that tunnel, because there were two guys who used to go around and sell this, it was like a fanzine stuck to, you know, just stapled together, photocopied, Comic, which is the funniest, filthiest thing you'd ever seen. It was just a fanzine called Viz. That's right. And it's literally where, that's where Viz was born, right? It was basically that's selling right. well, it to they, the audience of the tube. That's right. That's where they first started. Exactly. Yeah. And he still lives there. I suppose, he, yeah, he, yeah, that's right. But who did you come on there when you came on? I, go, I, uh, I did it with uh, Stephen Duffy, with Ice House, with Womack and Womack. That was a legendary yes. one where we were doing Soul Man and Jimmy Nail got up to sing with us and said, these people are soul people. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in fact, really, the first time I did it, because that was the funny thing, you were always trying out new presenters, some of whom worked, a lot of whom didn't. And when I did it with Ice House, we were introduced by this incredibly enthusiastic elfin character called Nick Laird Clues, who yeah. wasn't lasted very long, who came back with us on the train. We got talking. He asked me to come and play for his band Dream Academy. And that's how I got to know David Gilmore. There you are. Sure. Yeah. So you, there you, you are. There you are. Yeah. So thank you. And just to, just, just to describe the way you, what, what, what it was to do it, you had to go up to Newcastle, which was the only, you know, there weren't many reasons to go to Newcastle, to play, apart from playing the brilliant City Hall. But um, you found yourself in Newcastle with a load of other Geordies, Jeff Womfer, who was one of the yes. main directors. He and, was the director, a very funny yeah. fellow, yeah, great. And who was the other? Chris and Gavin was the other. Gavin, Gavin and yeah. Andrea Womfer and Malcolm Gary, who was the producer. Malcolm, they the of other. course, yeah. But they, 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 who's still around. In fact, I'm going yeah. to do a show with a prostate cancer charity show at the Royal Albert Hall with Malcolm. So he's still sort of, you know, working away and doing stuff. So those, but it was, I think the other thing was because you, everybody used to have to go up the night before. It was such a long way. You couldn't go up that, that day, you know, but it What's meant that? that everybody was around enjoying themselves the night before. The walls of the Gospel Park Hotel could probably bear witness to many uh, <laughs> frissons, events, um, and, and little heartbreaks. <laughs> but and also you could kind of tell how, how what the record company thought of you judging by whether you got the train or were flown that, that's right <laughs> we flew <Yeah. laughs> i did half an hour i did it in a van once <laughs> but you know there, there would be no chris evans if it wasn't for the tube yeah. for example that whole vibe was taken completely from the from the tube and also with what was going on at that time was what we called then alternative comedy. Uh, and a lot of those guys were starting on your, on your show as well, weren't they? Like, like Vic Reeves, I think. That's so. right. Well, that we, 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 rather, we, we, we embraced them. I mean, Vic Reeves was one I'm doing the podcast with, but also the people, uh, you know, French and Saunders and, and, and Edmondson, Rick Mayo and, and Robbie Coltrane, all those people who are doing the comic strip because it sort of, it was, it was the, it was interesting because again, it was that, we're doing something different. And it was a bit like the sort of inmates had taken over the asylum for a while and it was kind of great and you could do what you wanted. And I think is that there was a time, maybe it's coming back with the, with the internet, you can do what you want on the internet sort of thing, you know, but there was a time in television where just for a moment where you could just come up with an idea, um, sketch it out on the back of a matchbox and then somebody would give you half a million quid to go and make it. And nowadays you can't do that. It's like there's, you know, you have to wade through um, endless 
sort of uh, commissioners and forms and um, proposals and work out everything you're going to do in advance rather than just say, we've got a vague idea of doing this. Can we just go off with a film crew and do it? Um, and I think that was that was very much that time. And that's what the comic strip was sort of about. Although they thought, you know, they wrote their films very carefully, but it was based on they just have a good idea and then there's somebody giving them money to go and do it. But you're still incredibly constrained by sort of language and stuff. I remember you had a sort of shocking, Simon Le Bon said something shock when he was introducing BAD, I think. And it, it wasn't even that bad, what he said, but there was a huge chastisement. Of the well, show. we used to get in there where there was endless little things. And I think, yeah. Um, yeah, there was an incident I seem to remember where we thought it was amusing, where you had a little hamster appearing. And we <laughs> said it was Michael Jackson's hamster and he was called William. And we were going to have a competition to see if anybody could guess the weight of the hamster. And you had to put on a postcard, guess the weight of Michael Jackson's willy. And we thought that was funny, but it just really, it was like there was a thousand, you know, it was so, such a babyish joke, really, you know, from the like sort of 10-year-old or two. But it was a lot of, you know, um, complaints about that and so forth. But there we are. That's, you know, it was that was, that was the 80s for you. But of course, then you got in trouble for swearing as well, didn't you? What did you say? Well, I had just an inadvertent slip of the tongue. I mean, I was, it was, I was tired, actually. I think I'd been... I'd been inadvertently overserved at the Gospel Park Hotel the evening before, um, and uh, and I it was on a little trailer for the show saying "be there" or "be a completely ungroovy fucker," uh, and I don't know why I said that. It just came out. I don't know why. I just don't know why. Came and there wouldn't have been a problem with it. I mean, nowadays people say all that sort of thing on the television, yeah. um, uh, um, but there was a huge outcry at the time. Mary Whitehouse wrote and, and complained, and I wrote back to apologising. I actually agreed with. Them. It was a inadvertent tip of the tongue, and you didn't. Want, and in fact, she was right. And it's like, you look now; there's endless swearing on the television all the time. You know, I mean, it's and I would have put a stop to it. So I think she was right, and I was wrong. Yeah. No, we now have an eight a.m. watershed, don't we? Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Exactly. But, you know, it was it watershed. was it was an interesting channel. Channel Four it started because because I seem to remember when it first started that it was going to be. And I think this was the term, a minorities channel. And then a few things happened in, mostly it was the 80s and, and groovy music happening and MTV or whatever. But it, then they decided to make it a, a youth channel. That it was, that was the sort of premise on which it sold itself, Channel 4. But of course, they struggled with that a bit, didn't they? You know? Yeah, I, I think that they, yeah, I think the first, the alternative, when it started, I think there were all these people like Jeremy Isaacs and Richard Attenborough was in, were involved with it. And they were guiding it. The idea was it, was it would give a platform to people that didn't have a voice elsewhere, which was quite an interesting take on things. And so allow people like the comic strip to make films where they wouldn't have been able to make them before. And they did, they financed really great films. And so, but then they kind of took on a different idea. They were just trying to be, they were trying to be a ratings winner like everybody else in the end. And so, yeah, it sort of changed, but it was a good idea. But like lots of things, you know, they, they, they you know, things come and go, but they, it was, um, but at that particular time, it was, it was great because they had their own take on things, you know, and it was an alternative to what you could see at the time. And was it your swearing that put shut the show down in the end, Jules? I can't remember. I think it had run its course because it had been it, it had been um, very spontaneous, and it had been uh, it was a great fun, of course. But it was it was then they tried to sort of uh, we did a show, and that new director came up, and he was trying to say he was trying to make spontaneity happen and you can't do that it needs to have, you know you can't enforce that you can't be outrageous every week you know and it just it, i think it had run its course but it was great while it had gone on um 
but I think it had naturally run its course by the end. It, it went on for a little bit after I'd sort of went, went home. And then it, it was very honoured because I think they had different people step in for me. Peter Cook was one, Dame Edna was another. So they had the best people uh, were depping for me. flattering to uh, have that calibre. It really couldn't have been better. Exactly. Yeah. But, but it was really sort of unbelievable. But then um, by the end of it, Squeeze had re- reformed because also by, the, by that time I'd left Squeeze, Squeeze had split up. They'd reformed, and then uh, we got together and toured for about three years and did two or three records, and I think it had another hit somewhere along the line. Anyway, and, and, but by the end of that, then I was, getting, I was doing some, a film somewhere about music in, um, in um, where was I, doing film and music in Memphis or something, and we would, I was also I had a lot of gigs of my, on my own, and so basically, myself and Gilson, the drummer, we, I said, well, I can't do it. I'm afraid I was, was, was only so, and I did a, t- a, mo- a music program in New York after about three years I said I'm sorry I can't do this anymore so by the end of the 80s that was it so Squeeze had sort of split up I left them they split up then we got back together again then I then I had to sort of uh, leave them but all on good terms and I and I um, uh, but then my big band started which was just me and Gilson the drummer and I'd say well here he is my big band ladies and gentlemen just one person <laughs> would come on stage he was it um, but then it evolved literally into a big band of, of 18 people and the strange thing was the more people you had in the band it seemed the more people would come and see you um, so I'm always looking for more people. Maybe you could both both join me, or just get more and more well, people. Sure, because uh, because obviously you played at. Uh, we were privileged to see you playing at, at David Gilmore's seventieth, and uh, and Jeff Beck got oh, yeah. up, and uh, and David got up. You played with so many amazing well, that, people, Jules. I mean, that was a strange thing by having the big band, and then that's what you wouldn't have thought. Then by the nineties, the big band had sort of gone on, and then really the strange thing was then in by the early like eighties and the and the and the and the first five or six years of the 90s we would put these records out and we were selling loads of, i was selling loads of records you know more than i'd ever done before i mean it was very strange for an old gen- gentleman like myself um, but you do get amazing uh, guest artists um and so with some great guest artists and yeah. some interesting sort of uh, collaborations of stuff so yeah it was it was it was strange i wouldn't have thought of really having a big band would have worked it certainly doesn't in a pandemic but um <laughs> there you are and then how so what was the genesis of later then jules how did you so I suppose later first came out after the tube had finished. I'd done this program in America. There was a fellow who ran BBC Two called Michael Jackson, and he wanted to do a music program. I went to have dinner with him, and I, he booked the I booked the he booked the table uh, um, at the Caprice restaurant, and I went to meet him. And I said, "I'm meeting Michael Jackson," and the tension in the room—you could tell all the waiters <laughs> they had the best table. And when this fellow arrived, and he was a great fellow. I mean, he was a really sort of. Uh, you know, he was a very important uh, and clear thinking sort of executive, but his name was Michael Jackson. So they got the wrong idea and that must have happened to him quite a lot. So you could see them all sort of, they obviously, obviously they didn't say anything, but they were just slightly, oh. <laughs> when it was not Michael Jackson. But he then, he then with, uh, with myself and with Mark Cooper, Janet Fraser-Cook who directs it, sort of worked out that you just wanted to take something back to the basic idea and try and have a mix of music and to to, to to be a home where there wasn't uh, where other things didn't have a home like folk or blues or world music or uh, whatever um, and reggae music and all that as well as having mainstream people and as well as having new people and well as well as well as having great legends so that was it. that was the sort of the idea and you'd have it in one room and and um, on it would go. It, it, can, can I tell you? I have a terrible fear on on later now. Jules, which is that for, ever since I've done, I don't know, for anyone who knows, when the show starts, all the bands are playing a groove together, right? That's when, when it comes up. Now, every time I've done later, you've always asked me to start it, Jules, right? You've gone, all right, guy, take it away. So I'm now terrified when I do later that if you don't ask me, 
then I've done something wrong. <laughs> but well, I'm not your favourite you anymore. But, <laughs> no, but actually, it's like, no, but, uh, but, but, but you, you know, because it's a last minute thing, and of course, we sort of rather that's we rather stop doing that now. But the but because it was such a last minute thing, the, the the sort of groove at the front, I would just look around the room for somebody I knew who could be relied upon, who would understand. Because a lot of people, if they were sometimes the visiting Americans, wouldn't quite understand what was required. And but I, if 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 ever somebody I knew was in the room who was a really good musician that you could that would understand what the thing was, that was the answer. <laughs> yeah, so I was you. always looking around. And I was always a bit disappointed when you weren't when, when was a week when you weren't playing with somebody <laughs> on the show. Jules, you played on that show, obviously, but over the years with so many people. I mean, I'm 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 wondering who your all-time hero was that you suddenly sat down and got a time, chance to groove with. Probably guy. Um, and then after that, um, I suppose. No, I mean it is great. You you can't. You have to pinch yourself to think to to um, you know because you're sitting next to people. If there are people you've grown up with, that's really great. Who are then sort of well known artists. But if there's somebody who was a great artist when you were a child that you liked, you have to sort of pinch yourself. You know, I mean, I remember playing with Paul McCartney and thinking, I can't believe this. You know, yeah. I grew up sort of worshiping the Beatles, and, and there there I am playing Lady Madonna with him. Um, and he showed me exactly the fingering as well, which is slightly different to what I thought it was. Um, uh, you know, so things like that. I think it was really good. I remember B.B. King coming on and seeing B.B. King, his neck started to rock in rhythm and his foot started to go when we were doing some boogie. And I thought that's, I was, that, was, that was a great moment because not only was it an exciting moment of playing, but I could see that the way I was pl- pl- And he said it to me before. He said, you played like people used to play a long time ago. And I said, oh, thank um, he meant it in the best possible way, yeah. um, uh, but the uh, and I could see it had got him going by his physical reaction. So that was that was good, you know. Amazing. I mean, of course, Doctor John as well. I would have thought. Yeah. Doctor John was really great. Um, and uh, and there's a YouTube bit actually of us on uh, American television show which we did, which where which I was looking at the other day. And um, but you forget this. The strange thing you do something, you know, TV show at the time might go out and have sort of I don't know million viewers or whatever it is or half a million viewers but not like sort of the big rating show sort of thing but then after the event something appears on youtube and it keeps building up and this thing had had like sort of 10 million views unbelievable i mean you thought hang on a minute what's happened here i've seen it you've been a dual dual uh, boogie boogie with with dr john isn't it Dressed yeah up. we have top hats on um i'm not sure i think the top hats was my idea um i'm not quite sure why it was i think it's because on his record gumbo we he had I was trying to think what that was, but I, I made us have that. <laughs> I, I mean, the sad thing is, is some of those clips now, when you watch later, you know, on replay, you know, sometimes they're the last time any of these guys appeared on TV. They've gone. That's a, that's a sad thing. The positive thing, though, that is it's great to capture people before they go. That's right. There's one of uh, Chris Barber the other day, one uh, Johnny Cash, you know, people. But then also you get the uh, the first time people are on television as well. So, you know, like Amy Winehouse, you get a lot of the first time she was appeared and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, so it's, you get both ends of it, you know, with the people that are great. We know. never got a chance to talk about your train set, which I know is uh, your main. Well, hope. I'm happy to do you, We can do it. We can do a whole uh, separate. Um, um, and I really loved what you posted the other day of, of the Blue Peter clip of the, of the Reverend doing the sound effects of a train. Oh, yeah. yeah, the first beatboxer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. It was. It was when he was going along the tracks. It was so. I thought, what a great bloke. What a, yeah. absolutely nothing like 
this I've seen, you know, really great. They don't make TV like that anymore. And they don't no. make TV like yours anymore, Jules Old. No. You know, it's such a pro, isn't it? To say that sort of, you, thank you so much for being on here. The music business owes you so much. Yeah, on behalf of a grateful nation. Yes, yes. <laughs> we said- didn't even mention the other fact that he's uh, your 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 deputy lieutenant of Kent. Yes, uh, lieutenant. That's a lieutenant, lieutenant of America. Sorry, yeah, deputy yeah. lieutenant of Kent. That we were you in charge of the variants or? Um, no, but if there's an invasion or something like that, you know, we've been tar- in charge of the beacons, and of course, representing her her dear Majesty when she when 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 she can't be there in person. All oh, right. Anyway, I, I've got to fly off because I've got to go and see knitting now. But it's marvelous to see you both, and uh, marvelous. I've a, a privilege and honour to be on this very notable um, podcast and um, I can't wait to uh, hear it and, uh, and and I shall be following you on Instagram to see when it appears. That was such great, fun. Great fun. Could go on forever. Could go forever. Yeah, he's got such a diverse career, hasn't he? You know, and, yeah, but now I want to know who's a secret boogie woogie player because that's the one thing he knows about everyone. <laughs> Yeah, they wouldn't confess elsewhere. Jules has managed to have a great sense of humour that he's carried through as well, and uh, so we can all laugh along at ourselves on TV. Thanks for listening. Um, Please leave your lovely comments, reviews, and please subscribe. And thank you to Ben, our producer. Oh, yes, and thank you to you for all of those um, wonderful things you do for us, and listen especially. And we will see you, or you'll hear us, this time next week. So it's good night from him. And it's good night from all of us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.